how does someone get glomerular nephritis? What is, how does it occur? I mean, pathogenesis. And he says, well, really not much is known about it. Yeah. And, and I said, okay, my uric I will do research in disease mechanisms. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. If you're studying pathology or you're working in pathology, you have, of course, heard of Robbins and Cotran's Pathologic Basis of Disease and the book's senior editor, Dr. Vinay Kumar. This will be a two-part episode. Today, in part one, we'll hear about Dr. Kumar's early education and the influence of his grandfather, how he studied botany and then went on to medical school, how and why he decided to move to America, and some of his early work with natural killer cells. All right, here's Dr. Vinay Kumar. Thank you very much for being here today. It's a, it's a great honor. It's my pleasure. Uh, Dennis, I have always sort of um, regarded uh, PAs very, very highly. And uh, perhaps you know or don't know that uh, I went to your annual meeting in Baltimore and John Baxter was with us mm -hmm. uh, and addressed the, the group there. And uh, it, was, it was very, very nice. It was very receptive, very, very enjoyable interaction I had with the, with the PAs. I remember that I, I was there. I remember everybody. Well, a lot of people are still talking about the book signing you did. That was that was a <laughs> yeah. lot of fun. Yeah, that was that, that that was fun. That was fun. We ran out of books, so, so yeah. uh, I, I signed small pieces of paper. That's and right. That's yeah, right. to people, and they, I said we hope they would paste it on their front uh, front page or something, something like that. Never never done something like that before, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So let's kind of get into your history a little bit. Um, I want to kind of go way back to the beginning when I think you were you were a small child still, and I've heard you say that your grandfather was influential in your decision to become a doctor, and then he also taught you a, a lesson about compassion. And I, I found that to be a very interesting story. I wonder if you could could you could you tell us that story? Yeah, sure. And then it's uh, uh, my grandfather, my mother's father, was very very in my becoming a physician, in my becoming a certain type of physician. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. Well, the story starts, and, and this, of course, when was born, when my grandfather, who used to live in a small village in uh, what is now Pakistan, as you know, India and Pakistan, India was divided into Pakistan and India in 1947. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but way, way, way before that, my grandfather, as a, as a kid, used to live in a small village at the bank of a very large river, Indus River. And uh, one day through their small village, uh, a, a very senior doctor came and passed by and saw patients. And my grandfather said, oh, my God, I want to become a doctor. So uh, he wanted to become a doctor. And his father, his father was a farmer also. And they're, they're not particularly well off. So he goes to, to his father and says, uh, Bapu, his father, my father, Bapu, I want to become a doctor. And his father says, are you crazy? You know, you can't become a doctor. You go, to become a doctor, you have to be educated in English medium school. Now, we don't have an English medium school here. He said, no, no, but there is a school across the river from where we live, which is English medium school. And he said, well, you know, it's in this there, but uh, 
uh, how, how, how do you go there? Okay. I mean, there's a big river in between, and uh, then there's nowhere to get there. Uh, the the UK, one can take boats, but the boat boatman charges quite a lot of money to just cross the river. So you know, he heard that from his father, and he sort of used to stand longingly uh, on the banks of the river, looking at the school on the, on the other side, which was visible from the other side. The river was actually fairly large, almost a mile wide at that time. And so, you know, he stood there watching, stood there watching day after day. And one day he just jumped into the river. He just jumped into the river and swam across the river and went to the other side. And dripping clothes, he goes to the school and says, I want to see the headmaster. He sees the headmaster. And the headmaster says, what's going on? He said, Sir, I want to go to your school because I want to become a doctor. You are in the English medium school. And so the headmaster was just completely taken aback. He said, Here's this kid in dripping clothes has swam across the river who wants to do this thing. We should do it. So he tells him, Yes, you are, you are admitted. And not only you're admitted, you'll also get a scholarship. So your family won't have to pay anything. So, delighted, jumping with joy, he uh, jumps back into the river and comes back home and tells, tells his father that, uh, you know, I've been accepted. I've been accepted to the English medium school and then I can go to medical college after that. His father says the same thing again. He said, look, you know, how, how are you going to cross the river every day? The boat, boat, boat ride is very expensive. We can't afford it. He said, don't worry about it. So, for three years, he would get up every morning and jump into the river, cross the river, go in, go in his wet clothes to the school. He he kept a dry pair there. He would change into the dry pair of clothes, put the wet clothes out, attend the school, and then in the afternoon he would put on his wet clothes again and jump back and and uh, swim back to back to his home. You know, this was so, so, such a powerful, such a powerful story. I mean, it's true story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I learned without my grandfather telling me anything, I learned that if you are passionate about something, if you have passion, there's no barrier that you cannot cross. And that was a very, very important life lesson. And uh, it helped me a lot, you know, and during my own 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 career. Uh, and, and so, you know, that basically did two things. One is it, it strengthened my desire to become a doctor because I wanted to be like him. Okay. And, uh, and, and secondly, I came to the conclusion that nothing is impossible. Everything can be done if you have passion. So, you know, I tell young people who are, uh, whom I meet and are residency applicants or faculty applicants, I said, you know, I know you're very smart. Otherwise, you would not be here for interview. I want you to tell me what's your passion. What are you passionate about? And, you know, if someone can't explain to me, someone articulate what they're passionate about, I don't want them. I want only people who are passionate about, you know, suddenly they have a passion about becoming the best breast pathologist in the world. Great. Okay. I'm passionate about being the 
best person who does the grossing. Fine. Mm-hmm. You have to. You have to have that. And I think uh, the, the, this is sort of passion. Now, coming to compassion. So my, my grandfather, you know, after he became a physician, he graduated from medical school in 1904. And he was a general physician. In those days, there were no specialists. So they were very rare specialists. So he was a general family physician, and he used to do some surgery. He used to do you know, internal medicine. He used to do orthopedics. You know, a little bit of everything. What he did not know, like he didn't, didn't know how to do cataract surgery. And he got uh, books, and he got got instruments imported, imported from the UK and started doing cataract surgery. Again, nothing is impossible. So when he started to uh, see patients in his private practice, you know, the patients would come and say, you know, this, this, that, etc., etc. And after, after he finished examining the patients, uh, the patient would ask, uh, Dr. Sir, uh, what is your fee? How much is your fee? And he would say, you know, as you leave the clinic, Outside the clinic, there's a box. Put in it whatever you want to put in. If you don't have anything, don't put in. Nobody will check what you've done, what you've not done. Put it in there, whatever you want. And this was his compassion for the sick and the poor. Interestingly, what would happen is this, that every now and then, you know, uh, 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 he was living in a farming area. Uh, a farmer would come to say, you know, doctor, uh, you know, three years ago, you took care of my child. You went on horseback to the, my village to attend to him, my child. At that time, you were poor. We couldn't give you anything. But now I am doing well. I have had a bumper harvest. So I brought two big bags of wheat and a cow for you. Now, you know, my grandfather used to have a few cows and buffaloes. He's still a farmer. And so he was never poor. I mean, he was not poor as a human being. He was not poor in material things because People gave him a lot without without his asking. They gave it to him because he was so compassionate. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized then that uh, a doctor, in addition to being smart and excellent in clinical, should also be very compassionate. You know, Dennis, when I now see doctors, I tell them, I tell some. I said, you know, Doc, uh, you get a grade of C from me. Oh, they're taking it back. Okay, I said, no, let me explain. You get three C's, C, C, and C. And he had to look positive and say, it's for competent, caring, and compassionate. Okay. And that's directly the influence of my grandpa. Directly. That, and that's the interesting thing about compassion. I mean, it, 
like you said about your grandfather, if you are compassionate, eventually it does come back to you, even if it's just a little bit. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And it's funny too, how like part of the reason why I wanted to hear this story from you is my grandfather was an influence on me in a similar way. And you mentioned how you learn these things from him without him have to, he didn't have to actually even say anything or he didn't sit you down and say, okay, today we're we're going to learn about compassion. You watched what he did and how he treated people and you learned from that. And I had a, a similar experience with my grandfather and, and with my father as well. Yeah. You know, you know, Dennis, uh, yeah, I, have, I have been involved in uh, developing medical curriculum. And uh, most recently I was involved in uh, developing the curriculum for humanities for medical students in India. It, as you know, I'm from India originally, and I remain in touch with India, and I care a lot for my country. And so I was helping them with, you know, designing a every medical student when they joined the medical school. The first three months was humanities. Okay, and in, and I always say that, you know, things like Compassion, caring, empathy cannot be taught, but they can be caught. You can catch them from somebody. You can't do it. You can't become compassionate by somebody giving you a lecture. Uh-huh. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, if we are, we should be the models of behavior ourselves. So that we can, so our medical students and our trainees can see, see that thing. They can feel that thing without us saying, oh, no, look, look, you know, uh, you have to be empathetic. How do you mm-hmm. tell people you have to be, how do you tell people you have to be empathetic? They're empathetic or not empathetic. Right. Right. Now, so you said you're, you're, your grandfather, you, you know, watching him, you decided you wanted to be a doctor as well. But before that, you, you studied botany, which <laughs> yeah. seems rather, rather far from, yeah. from that. How did, how did you become interested in botany? <laughs> so, uh, you know, as life would have it, uh, Dennis, uh, it was a very interesting story and, and very powerful also, as I will, as I will relate to you briefly. So, uh, my father was uh, employed by the Indian Army. He was not a, he was not a uniforms uh, officer, but he was a civilian officer uh, in the Army. And one of the things, as you know, if you work in the armed forces, is you get transferred. Okay, So he got transferred every two to three years from one part of the country to the other part of the country. So I had to change schools. Uh, as, as luck would have it, uh, when I was changing schools, from when I was elementary school and then high school, uh, I would go to, we would, we would go to a new city and uh, my father would take me to the school and uh, say, what class? And my, my father would say, you know, sixth grade or something. They say, okay, well, we give you a test. Okay. So they give me a test. And twice it so happened in the test, I came up, came up, the test came up as uh, eligible for seventh grade, one grade higher. Okay. So, during my schooling years, I skipped two grades just like this. So mm. now time comes for me to apply to medical school. And I'm 15 years old. And the minimum age for entry 
is 17. So all those, you know, skipping of classes, which uh, I thought was a great, great thing to happen, smart, uh, smart, uh, basically said, okay, <laughs> break. You can't go right now. Okay. okay. So, uh, you know, um, I talked to my father and uh, he said, what do you want to do for, for two years? I said, you know, I, I will go join college. So just to explain, prior to that, I was sort of in the community college like place where I didn't have full bachelor's degree. Yeah. Um, so I said, join a bachelor college, good college, and uh, join the bachelor's degree program there. And I went there, and, and uh, I had to dis- I had to declare what my major would be. And I said, what? Okay. And honestly, I did I think a lot about it. No, I didn't. Okay. I thought there was something fascinating, interesting. So I decided to major in botany. And what happened was, of course, we had lectures on plot evolution. But in addition to that, we had to have field trips in which we were supposed to go to, you know, areas far from where the city was, Pune, in the hills around there, and collect plants. And collect plants, you know, bring them back. And then our task was, uh, to classify them, to identify them, the genus, species, and classify them, the proper family. And that was not easy. Okay? You had to observe, you had to read, you had to see the pattern of the veins, the leaves, you had to see the precise shape of the leaves, whether they were notched or they were straight or they were round, etc., etc. You had a lot of observation. And, and uh, I got very fascinated by that. So I would go to... So, so I, I went to the one, one required trip. Okay. But after that, I, I, I liked it so much, I went on two trips completely on my own. It was not required. I just on the weekend told my father that I'm going there. And I'm surprised my father let me go because I was 16 years old and I was going to take a train and go to a city 100, 100 miles away and stay there overnight without knowing where I'm going to stay and come back with a sack full of nuts. So uh, as I was doing this thing, when I would hit a block and I couldn't identify the plant, I would go to my professor about me. And I say, you know, Professor Apter, you know, can you help me with this? You know, many times, most times, sometimes he said yes. Other times he says, I don't know myself. So that, that sort of made me curious, made me, made it challenging. So I'd go to the library. Okay. I was the only person going to the library, to be honest with you. Okay. I go to the library and look up books, etc., etc., and try to classify that properly. So I got very, you know, what this did was this did two things. It created in me the attribute of curiosity. Because I was I, it was not just that I thought some, uh, everything was possible, but I also thought I also thought that I also enjoyed finding out new things, curiosity. Mm-hmm. So that's how I finished my college with honors and, and great distinctions and so on and so forth. So at the end of it, I tell my father, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a botanist. 
And he said, why? He said, well, you know, while, while, while collecting plants, something, something struck me. During evolution of plants, there, was, there are plants which are flat. You know, lichens, for example, you can see. They're flat plants. And then there are, most plants are vertical. And the most ancient vertical plant is the fir. So that change from flat habitat to vertical habitat would, like, would have required a lot of structural and physiological changes. Because now the plant could have carbon dioxide and sunlight on both sides rather than only on one side, a flat plant. And I just that I, I thought that was that was phenomenal. And I wanted to be a botanist to study plant evolution. You know, the basic the research bug got into me. So my father says, okay, you know, if that's what you want to do, you know, we go to Delhi University where very famous botanist, very, very well known, internationally known botanist was the head of the department. And we seek an interview with him. So, um, you know, I tell him, sir, this is what I want, want to do. And I want me to be your graduate student. And then he asks my father, what do you think? My father tells him that, you know, he tells about the story of my grandfather, a compassionate physician. And, uh, we would very much like him to be a physician. So this Professor Maheshwari says to me, he asked me a question, which was life-altering. He said, son, I would love for you to be my graduate student, but I want to ask you a question. Do you want to be a botanist because you like botany, or do you want to be a botanist because you like research? I said, sir, actually I like research. Then he said, well, go become a physician and do research. You don't have to be a botanist to do research. You, your desire will be fulfilled. Your family will be happy. Your grandparents will be happy. So <laughs> that's how I, I went towards botany and uh, through one question asked by a very, very distinguished botanist. Mm -hmm. I think. So it sounds like the curiosity you talked about that led you to botany, but it also led you back to medicine. Absolutely. Okay. And I, when I joined medical school, I knew very, very clearly that I'm going to have a research career. Okay. Before the first class, I said, I'm going to be a researcher. Yes, go ahead. Was it, was it research in pathology that you were looking at? Or well, was it... well, I was, when I, when I joined medical school, it was just research. I didn't know to research in what. Okay. <clears throat> So I went with this curiosity and I knew I was going to research and I figured, you know, I'll, I'll find out. So I am in my second year of medical school where pathology is taught. And uh, there was a professor, his name was Professor Chuk, C-H-U-G, Professor Chuk. Very, very sort of dynamic sort of lecturer. Okay, Very, very dynamic, very, you know, uh, passionate about teaching. And that's the best way to put it. So one day, you know, he's teaching us glomerulonephritis. And remember, we are talking about 1964. Okay? Uh, not much was known about the pathogenesis of glomerulonephritis at that time. 
So he's teaching environmental writers, and you know, he takes the chalk and on the board, he there were no PowerPoints or slides. He actually at that time actually teachers wrote on the chalkboard, chalkboard with chalk. And uh, and you know, I might suggest to deviate a little bit. You know, when some thing is written on a chalkboard and the chalk, and you follow what the professor is doing, it's very different from just seeing. The, the picture of a beautiful picture of a glomerulus. Mm-hmm. It's just different experience. Okay? Because you become a part of the process when the, the professor is drawing with the chalk. You know, you're watching the hands go up and down and he's talking, you know, see, this is the outline, this is the tubule here, and this is the woman's capsule and so on and so forth. So he's telling us, teaching us that and uh, I ask him, sir, you know, how does someone get glomerulonephritis? What is, how does it occur? I mean, pathogenesis. And he says, well, really not much is known about it. Yeah. And, and I said, okay, my Eureka moment. I will do research in disease mechanisms. Mm, okay. And so that's when I said, I will, I will do research in disease mechanisms and I will be a pathologist. Because pathologists, in my view, were the ones who studied disease mechanism. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Vinay Kumar. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Vinay Kumar on the People of Pathology podcast. Well then, okay, so you finished up, you finished medical school in India. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you left India to come to, to the U.S., to Boston. There was a step in between. Okay, all right, let's, let's go through that. Yeah, yeah, it's important, the step is very important. All right. So I finished medical school, and... I joined a residency program in pathology. It was a, it was a, it, in, in, I moved from the city I was in Amritsar to New Delhi, where this, the, there is an institution called All India Institute of Medical Sciences, okay, which was, it was a phenomenal place, you know, Dennis, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> that place accepts 50 students from more than 50,000 applicants, okay. So you can say cream de la cream. Oh. The, the best of the very best. Right, okay. Okay, so so when I finished medical school and I knew I was going to research in pathology, I said, I found out the best place to do that is all India Institute of Medical Sciences in Delhi. And the best professor to do it with is Professor Ramalina Swami. So I go there and say, it was a combined residency and PhD program. Uh, and uh, so think of it like an MD-PhD program in a slightly different form. So I go there and I seek out this professor, world-renowned, a member of the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S., and honorary, honorary doctorates from Karolinska in Sweden and Oxford and so on and so forth. But his expertise was in nutritional biochemistry, studying the disease mechanisms of Quashar-Kong, protein calorie malnutrition, for example. That was his big thing. So I did my dissertation on him, and I 
worked on research monkeys and they giving their protein poor diet and recreating a model of kosher corn, you know, a large fatty liver and other features that occur with it. So, you know, I did, did and it was mostly lipid biochemistry that I did. I finished it and then I finished in, in December of, uh, no, in spring of 1972. And, but now I wanted to have a career in research. I tested research when I was doing my PhD. I wanted to be a full-time researcher and I wanted to do cancer research. Okay. So I go to my, my mentor who was very well known in Boston. He was very well known in USC and we had come multiple times and given lectures and ran rounds and so on. So I told him that, uh, Dr. Ramalinga Swami, I want to go to America to do research and I want to go to Boston. No. You may ask, why Boston? That's because that's the only place I knew where I knew medical schools like Harvard and you know Boston University and so on. You know, Boston is seen as a mecca of medicine around the world. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so, so I said I want to go to Boston. So he said, okay. I said I want to do cancer research. I want to go to Boston. So he wrote three letters: one to the chair of pathology at Boston University School of Medicine, one to the Harvard Medical School, and one to Tufts Medical School. And the chair of pathology at Boston University was Dr. Stanley Robbins. And uh, he he responded to his letter very quickly within two weeks and said, okay, I I don't need to interview him. And he can have a junior faculty position in my department. He tell him that he can come. So so that's how I ended up in Boston. Coming to the U.S., was that the the first time you had ever been outside of India? And that is the first time I flew on a plane. Oh, okay. <laughs> the first time I flew on a plane. That, that's a long flight for a first time. Yes, of course. There was no flight, direct flight there. You know, we flew to Amsterdam and from Amsterdam to London. <laughs> from London to, to Boston. It was, it was, it was, an, ex- wow. it was, an, it was an, it was an experience. Okay. Yeah. Uh, suddenly being in the air and, all, all the new places and completely different lands. Yes, I I ended up in uh, in Boston, and then I that's a little, little little joke here. Okay. Okay. So uh, some of my friends were already in Boston, and I went and stayed with them for the first few days. So uh, my letter of appointment said, you know, your appointment starts on July 1, 1972. Uh, so, and I, I think I reached on July 2nd or 3rd. So, I tell my friend, okay, on July 4th, I tell him, you know, I have to go join. I'm already three days late. He says, look, July 4th, everything is closed. It's Independence Day. I said, no, no, I said, no, no, no. Oh, I said, yeah. I, don't, I, don't. I said, I, said, I, said I, was, I was supposed to join in July, and I just arrived here, and I can't delay this thing any further. I have to go and tell them I'm here. He said, there'll be nobody there. Okay, don't go. I said, no, I must go. I'll take you. <laughs> he took me. <laughs> everything, everything was locked. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, <laughs> so, uh, so wait a minute. So your first day in the U.S. was July 4th in Boston? Yes. <laughs> wow. <Yeah>. Okay. 
you know, it's 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 interesting. You know, I'm first day in U.S. I'm in Boston, a place on Independence Day, at a place where the battle for independence was fought. Right. Okay. <laughs> what a what a what a what a coincidence. What a coincidence. Wow. So I was going to ask you about kind of the culture shock aspect of it. And I have to think coming in on that day into Boston, that must have been a lot to take in. A lot to take in. Okay. First of all, I I, I had no transportation, so I had to take public transport. That's the first time I took one of those, you know, elevated trains, which uh, they put them down in Boston. They're all underground now. So, you know, I had to learn how to get onto the Get onto it. I'd never been on a on a uh, subway or something like that. Uh, buy a token. At that time, you had to buy a token and put it inside, and then you you just turn style open and you got inside the platform. So I had to learn that. Uh, I you know everybody looked stranger to me around. Uh, I never knew. I never met, met an American. But I tell you, when the 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 the, the real shock came. The real shock came when I, on July the 4th, I came down from the train at the station, uh, Northampton station, and I had to walk about three blocks to get to the medical school. So I get down and I get down and I'm on Massachusetts Avenue, which is still there. And it is, uh, it is morning, early morning time, time. I cannot start walking. And I, I, many of your listeners might know that uh, many medical schools in the U.S., the older ones, were started in in the cities, and the cities become deserted. Okay, and mm-hmm. there's yeah. suburban flight, and then there's only poverty there. And just like the south side of Chicago, for example, where you know Chicago is. Okay, and so I'm getting getting down and walking through a poor area where mostly African-Americans live now. And I walk and I see a guy who's completely drunk, you know, sitting on the sidewalk. And another one. And I, I got, you know, that's, I got so scared. I got so scared of these people that I decided to walk on the median between the two sides. I said, well, this is safer, okay. <laughs> right. the media, the media. Uh, and, and so I said to myself, I was always assumed that America was a land of milk and honey, rivers of milk and honey flowed in, in, in the US. This is this is not the US I thought it is. Well, shabby, dirty, trash cans overturned, alcoholics, drunks, sitting on the sidewalk. And that was the first big shock. I never imagined there was poverty in America. I had never imagined. And I saw rank poverty. And it affected me. It affected sort of how I thought about myself and the privilege that I had that other people didn't have. So, and then, of course, there were other examples of, uh, you know, <laughs> culture shocks, uh, you know, various uh, ways people talk to each other. 
Mm, okay. Everybody called Dr. You know, Dr. Robbins, you know. Most other faculty members called him Stanley. Hey, Stanley. Okay. I could, I said, how is it possible? This guy is a guru. He is the, he is the, the author of the world's most popular book, Pathology. Right. You have to dress my sir. Okay. And well, you know, Dr. Robbins, you know, got rid of the sir part of it. Okay. He says, no. So I used to always call him Dr. Robbins. I never called him Stanley. I want to get into uh, kind of how your relationship with, with Dr. Robbins uh, grew and what that turned into. But first, uh, let's take a little detour. I want to talk about your work with natural killer cells, because this was kind of in between there. And there's also, in this story, there's also another good lesson uh, that you like to talk about. So let, can, can we talk about that? Yes, I, I can talk about that. <clears throat> in fact, that's a very good segue. So when I reached Boston and reached, uh, met Dr. Stanley Robbins, uh, he he said, uh, you will do research. Okay, we'll set a research, we'll set you up for research. And uh, you have to do something else. You know, you have to either do clinical work or you have to teach. I said, I'll teach. Okay. Uh, so I started, I, I, I think I should tell you how I got, got into natural cure cells. Yeah, okay. Question you asked, okay. So here I am, I am in Boston and one of my first few days. So then I was so interested in cancer research. Even though my PhD was in nutritional biochemistry, I was interested in cancer research. And I actually wrote down a mini grant application before I left India to say, to tell Dr. Robbins and others that this is what I want to do. And that involved at that time, there was a lot of debate going on whether cancer is a genetic disease or an epigenetic disease. In other words, is, is it something that addresses the genome in a mutational way, a reversible way, or it affects the process of differentiation, which can be reversed. So I had written on a very elaborate experiment uh, involving a nuclear transfer from in a transform fibroblasts into non-transform fibroblasts and reciprocal to see if moving the nucleus from transformed cells to non-transformed cells will confer the malignant phenotype on the, on the recipient fibroblasts. You know, to me, the idea looked very simple and elegant. I was surprised it had not been done. So one of the professors in the department, Dr. Reiser, who was an expert in chemical carcinogenesis. So I went to him first and I said, here's my proposal. This is what I want to do. So two, three days later, he says to me, it's very good, but it can't be done. The nuclear transfer can, has only been done in amphibians and not in mammals. And uh, it's, I'm sorry, it just can't be done. I said, okay. Then I decided to speak with the other faculty member there, Michael Bennett, who then became a very profound influence in my life. So I go to Michael Bennett and I said, I know, he was an immunologist. So he said, I study immunity to cancer. I said, okay, you know, not chemical carcinogenesis, immunity, that's fine. And we sit down and he explains to me what he's doing. He's studying a phenomenon called hybrid resistance, which, which, which happens when it's, it, it's a phenomenon observed in bone marrow transplants. I won't go to the, the, the science of it, but it does against all laws of transplantation. So the rules that govern bone marrow transplantation 
very different from the rules that govern kidney transplantation or skin transplantation. And it was very puzzling. It was very intriguing. And when Michael Bennett, whom I eventually started to call Mike, okay, Mike sort of goes to the chalkboard and gets very animated and says, if you transplant from this strain A to strain A times B, it gets rejected. But if you take A times B and transplant to C, it gets rejected. But if you transplant A times B to A, it does not get rejected. And no law of transplantation can explain this thing. And his, his enthusiasm and his, his feeling of joy explaining this obscure phenomenon to me, I caught it. He didn't teach me. I caught it. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. And frankly, it was just curiosity. I actually had no good idea of where it would lead, lead to. I didn't have a goal that I'm going to solve this, this, this. Okay. So I said, I'm going to work with you. Okay, good. Okay, work with you. But I want to do something different, which is more directly related to cancer. He said, well, you know, uh, the, there are some inbred strains of mice which are genetically resistant to leukemia. And there are other inbred strains of mice which are susceptible to leukemia. Leukemia induced in mice by a virus, or friend leukemia virus. And it's not clear why the resistant ones are resistant. And the susceptible ones are susceptible. They, have, they share common MHCs. And people have done I read people had done thymectomy, removing the thymus, and still resistant, still resistant. They're removing the, you know, giving steroids to immunosuppress, still resistant. And uh, poisoning the macrophages, uh, still resistant. So the conclusion in the field was they're resistant because the virus can't even enter their cells, can't enter their white cells to produce leukemia. Mm-hmm. And I won't go into great details, but studying the sort of kinetics and the properties, it looked like it had to be something which was immunity, but not the not the not the T cells, B cells, and macrophages. So, what else is there in the upper bodies, which is a big reservoir of lymphoid cells and bone marrow? So you can do thymectomy to study thymus, you can do bursectomy to study bursa. Okay. But how do you do bone marrowectomy? You can't. Okay. So Mike thought of a very clever way of doing it. He said, let's give these mice radioactive strontium. Strontium 89. Strontium exchanging calcium in, and gas deposit in the bones. As a soft beta emitter, it only radiates the bone marrow cavity about two millimeter depth. And so this was the way of doing bone marrow, bone marrow activity. We did bone marrow activity, and then we infected them with the virus, and they started dying like flies. Wow. Hmm. Okay. So, fast forward. We discovered, we, 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 I wrote a paper in Journal of Experimental Medicine. That was the leading journal at that time. Yeah. Uh, I, I published it in 1974. 
Okay, I told you, I came in 72, and within two years, I had made this observation and published it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my paper got attention. Okay. And, uh, and people began to invite. Mike, Mike Bennett was my senior. Okay. He was the last author, I was the first author. They actually invited him. But Mike was such a generous, such a supportive person of young uh, faculty members and trainees. He said, Vene, you go. You did the experiment. I'm not going to go. It's your, it's yours. You know, Dennis, that kind of generosity in senior people is very, very rare. Yeah. Very, very rare. Okay? Everybody wants to be famous. Nobody wants to share fame. And nobody wants their trainees to become more famous than themselves. Okay. Not that it happened. But anyway, so I put in New York, and there at the meeting of New York Academy of Sciences, uh, two very senior people, uh, Ron Haberman, who was at NIH, and George Klein, who was at the head of the Karolinska Institute at, uh, in Stockholm. This Karolinska Institute is the place where there's a Nobel committee that decides who is going to get the Nobel Prize in medicine. So these two people in stature come and they describe something very, very similar, but done differently. And they call their cell natural cytotoxic cell or natural killer cell. Very quickly, I realized that what I had found previous year and what they were describing were all one and the same thing. I had done it in vivo using friend leukemia virus. They had done it in vitro using a related Maloney leukemia virus. And that was the foundation of this field of innate immunity. That is, of course, well known now. Um, the first line of defense is not T-cells and B-cells. first line of defense is innate immunity. And there are many, many components of innate immunity. Natural killer cells are one of those. So mm-hmm. this, is, this is how uh, I sort of say had to discover in K-cells. You know, there were three papers. Mine was actually the first. But, you know, then it's first and the second is all nonsense. You know, people pay too much attention to being first. Right. A huge thank you to Dr. Vinay Kumar. Here's a trailer for another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on part one of this episode. And that... That was so enlightening. I absolutely loved pathology, but I also loved surgery so much that when I committed to pathology residency at Northwestern, I had a very honest discussion with the chair. I didn't take any time off in medical schools. I went straight through, so I was actually finished with all of my courses in December instead of what would have been the following June. I loved surgery and the Department of Surgery offered me a six month internship in surgery. And they said, if I fell in love with surgery, they had so, they had, had several people drop out that I could stay on as a surgical trainee. So I had this transparent conversation with the chair of pathology that I was planning to do this six month surgical internship. And there was a chance that I might stay on rather than coming into pathology. And he was great. He said, of course, explore that. You can hear more from Dr. Melissa Upton in episode 73. This has been a really interesting conversation so far, and I'm very excited for all of you to hear the rest of it. 
So make sure you tune in next week for that. We're going to finish up with natural killer cells, and then we'll talk about how Dr. Kumar started working with Dr. Robbins on the textbooks and some of his experiences with teaching as well. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of the other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.